We just can't seem to get over our fears as people mask up while vaccinated outside. Plus, Canada's war on Christian pastors. I have a vested interest in this, of course. And today in the life of David, we're talking about the art of repentance. This is your favorite night of the week. This is The Deep End with Tim Hatch. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John I slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Welcome. Indeed, to 7.30 on Tuesday nights. You liking the new time? Let me know in the comments below. And also, welcome to everybody who's watching The Deep End on YouTube. We want you to go to the YouTube channel that is run for The Deep End. It's called youtube.com slash TV. So wherever you're watching from, please make your way over there. I guarantee you, you will not miss a thing even if you do it right now. Go to youtube.com slash TV and subscribe and uh, hit the notification bell and do all that kind of stuff for me. Uh, that looks like this the little um, thumbs up if you if you hit that thumbs up and like the video it helps with the algorithm on YouTube and we get more exposure and I think there's this channel is worth more exposure amen okay and also subscribe and then hit the notification bell that way you'll know when we are live every time we are live but youtube.com slash the deep end TV is where we want you to go this is episode 23 believe it or not of season four Uh, things moving right along here on the deep end and uh, we also have a lot of new content over at the deep end YouTube channel and only on the Deep End YouTube channel, I got some new videos out, some new six to three to eight minute videos, uh, things like how you get disappointed with God by taking scripture out of context, um, COVID-19 isn't a death sentence. And then every Monday, well, not every Monday, but every other Monday, I'm putting out a new move video to correlate with my book. And I want you to go there, go to the Deep End uh, channel on YouTube. That again is youtube.com slash TV, and then you will see all this content and hit the like and subscribe and all that kind of stuff. And that way you will always know when we post new stuff. Uh, I just mentioned my book and it's out and I want to give a shout out to an Instagram review that was sent to me directly by a guy named Rob Sakan or Skahan. I'm sorry, Rob Skahan. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He sent me this Instagram review, and I'm so glad to have received it. He said, I recently purchased your book and read it. I went into my tent, that's referring to one of the chapters in the book, and asked God what was going on in my life. I work in law enforcement. Oh, by the way, thank you for your service, Rob. And there's quite a bit of anxiety due to the current climate. Of course there is. Uh, The next night, while on the social media platform, I found out about a site about Jesus, so I followed it. A moment later, there was a post taken from the Bible where Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will in the future. I stopped and said to myself, Rob, God just answered you. Praise God and thank you for sharing your book with us. I love it and will recommend it. Thank you, Rob Skehan. I thank you for your uh, review. Check out the book at timhatchlive.com slash books up there in the web address, timhatchlive.com slash books. And thank you for those of you who have done the work to review it. It is a labor of love to write a book. It's a lot of work, and I thank God for everybody who's enjoying the book. Um, If you uh, leave me a review on the podcast, that would be very helpful too. By the way, the next person, yeah, here's a spontaneous giveaway. The next person who leaves a review on the Deep End Podcast on the Apple Podcast app gets a free book. So leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, send your free book right away. We're so glad to have all of you here, but I'm so, I got so much to talk about as usual. The show might go long. Do you like long? Do you like short? Let me know in the comments below. I like long. I hope you don't mind, but we're going to get into it. Let's go to Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you'd choose if you could choose news. Deep End News, ladies and gentlemen. The news you'd choose if you could choose news. Okay. In the 1980s, in the 1980s, a movie came out about Wall Street. Actually, it was about a Wall Street tycoon named Gordon Gekko. And the key line in that movie, the key takeaway of that movie, was the phrase, greed is good. Remember that? Does anybody remember that? Starting Martin Sheen and someone else, Michael Douglas. The line stuck because everyone knows that greed is not good. It's evil. It's one of the seven deadly sins. It's the cause of the 2008 housing market crash. Greed. Greed got into our hearts. We went after houses we couldn't afford. We overextended ourselves. Boom, the whole thing came crashing down. But the line greed is good stuck because... As bad as that philosophy is, we are in all some we are all in some ways, believe it or not, greedy. <laughs> and so we there is a part of us that thinks greed is good. There is, right? We, we know greed is not good, but we all think down deep, 
a little bit of greed's okay. Like it's good. It helps us get ahead. It helps, you know, the capitalistic market of America keep going strong. And what we have to reconcile is that inside all of us, there are two people. And the Bible talks about your flesh and the spirit, you know, and they're at war with each other, Galatians chapter five. And, and so, yes, underneath the surface of our, you know, supposed or outward generosity or, or desire to be generous, there is a little part of us that says greed is good. Well, the same can be true for all the other sins and the sinful tendencies of our human condition, such as with the topic of fear. Because here's the line of 2021, 2020-2021. Fear is good. Fear is good? And I have a question mark. Because that's kind of like the line today. That's kind of like the message of our age. What is the mask that we are called to wear, but a sign that you are afraid and compliant with the fear tactics of our media and our politicians? And those of you who have no problem with the mask and are already going to switch me off because I said that, just stay with me for a moment. What is social distancing? But the underlayment of fearing your fellow man that he might give you a death sentence just by sneezing on you. (laughs) What are the perpetual lockdowns or virtual lockdowns? Fear fully imposed on everything you know. Fear is in our country good. And after 15 months of being taught that we have nothing to fear except fear itself, we chose fear itself. And now it's almost as if we say, oh, that's fear. Fear is good. Fear is a good thing because the, the, the more afraid I am, the safer I will be. And so the more precautions that I take, the safer I will be. And we've embraced this ridiculous, uh, these ridiculous measures and upended our entire way of life around the world, by the way, because of a virus that you have 99.75% chance of recovering from, even if you get it in the first place, if you're under 70 years old and reasonably healthy. And so fear is the, I don't know, the good thing of our generation. And now we have to grapple with reopening. The jobs report came out last Friday. It was the worst jobs report in 12 months. The U.S. economy only added 266,000 jobs. And our politicians and our news media are wondering why, because we've told everybody to be afraid of going out of your house. That's why. And because the government is paying you not to work and because the schools are remaining closed and because nobody really does want to take responsibility anymore because they're afraid. Fear gets into us and, and, and it doesn't go away very easily. It doesn't go away very easily. And so this report came out of usatoday.com. I want to show you this. The title of the article, COVID-19 fear, anxiety, continue to hold back fully vaccinated Americans. Where does it come from and how can we overcome it? What a great question, USA Today. Fear is more than just an attitude. It is a spirit. And this article is wrestling with that. I want to just read the article, a little highlights. As the the weather warms up and millions of people continue to get vaccinated each day, Americans are beginning to feel optimistic that the worst of the pandemic is finally behind them. The CDC uh, has been issuing new guidelines that say fully vaccinated individuals can safely travel, meet with friends and family, and take off masks while outdoors, indicating a dramatically different world for many Americans who adhere to public health safety guidelines. But, and this is a key line, after more than a year of living in fear of COVID-19, some fully vaccinated individuals are hesitant to leave their homes and let their guard down. Are you kidding me? Like you still can't get out? You're fully vaccinated, you can't get out of a house? Yeah, it's just unbelievable. But anyway, the article goes on. Many of us have gotten very comfortable with the safety of our isolated environments and have provided that the the safety that our isolated environments have provided and taking these initial steps out of our safe home controlled environments can cause fear and anxiety. And so uh, another line, it says this anxiety may stem from habitual fear learned during the pandemic, individual past trauma and inconsistent messaging from health agencies. Mm. Inconsistent messaging from health agencies, you say? (laughs) Yeah, we got to get out. We've got to get out. Out. Inconsistency of the messaging from the people who are supposed to be telling us the truth. And when we don't have a foundation of truth, fear is the result. For instance, this article from the New York Times today ladies and gentlemen, says it is a huge, huge exaggeration when the CDC tells us that you have about, well, a little less than 10% chance of getting COVID-19 outdoors. Okay, so the CDC, 
releases a guidance. This is last month, by the way, about mask wearing outside. This is why people can't take the masks off even outside because the CDC said you have less than 10% chance of getting COVID-19 outdoors. And the problem with saying that is because it's not actually based on science. And even the New York Times has to agree with this. The New York Times actually found out a benchmark study. Now, this is in the article. Uh, a benchmark study seems to uh, prove that this is a huge exaggeration. Uh, Dr. Muge Sevic, a virologist at the University of St. Andrews, said, in truth, the share of transmission that has occurred outdoors seems to be below 1% and may be below 0.1%. <laughs> Multiple media epidemiologists told me the rare outdoor transmission that has happened almost seems to have involved crowded places or close conversation. And it goes on in the article to talk about it was just a couple of small, you know, locale areas where there was a high rate of transmission outside. They were all compacted in. I think it was a construction site in Singapore and some other places. But nonetheless, the CDC goes out and says, hey, you have a less than 10 percent chance. You got way less way less 10%, how about 0.1%? So the number that they give you is actually 100 times higher than the actual chance that you'll catch the disease outside. And this is why people are gonna go running outside with masks and kids are gonna fall on their face and pass out as happened a couple of weeks ago at a track meet uh, because they're forcing these kids to run with masks on and then uh, it just never ends because fear is a spirit. And here's the problem, we're getting crazy, we're getting crazy. Like I just saw, I saw this meme on Instagram. I had to share it with you. This It's a good one. Every minute we reach a new level of stupidity. So here's a woman. First off, she's got her dogs in a stroller and the dogs are masked up and she's in a uh, store. It looks like Walmart. I don't know. But this is so true because fear is a spirit. It doesn't go away. And then, of course, Lord Fauci comes out and says, we can maybe get close to normal, close to normal, not normal, close to normal next Mother's Day. Mother's Day 2022, so that's a year from now. But there are some conditions to that that everyone has to get vaccinated and so on and so forth. He goes on, fear is a spirit and it doesn't go away. And that's why the, uh, the, uh, the, the national paper USA Today says, where does it come from and, and how can we overcome it? And so I want to take you on a little journey on Deep End News here about fear because I know where fear comes from. And if you're a Christian, you should know where fear comes from because it's the only way to get over fear is to understand where it comes from. And this is so important because we, we so often as Christians segregate the spiritual reality, like spirits of fear and anxiety from the material world. And so we, we say we believe what's in this book. We say, we say, oh yeah, yeah, fear. I, I will not fear. Uh, you are with me. Uh, do not have any fear. Jesus, the word says over 365 times, don't fear. And so, yeah, we won't fear. And then we go out there and we fear, just like the world. We're Christians. We should know the truth. The, we should know the doctrine of fear. We should know the doctrine of fear. Okay, it's not official doctrine, but it's, it's what I'm talking about is just getting to understand where it comes from, what the Bible teaches us about this spirit. So my question right now that I want to answer is, where does fear come from? And it comes from the disconnection that we all have to our maker. See, we're created beings, ladies and gentlemen. We are created beings. We are created in the image of a loving father who created paradise for us. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, he planted us in the abode of God and we were supposed to spend eternity walking and talking with our maker in perfect harmony, and perfect communion, but sin came in. And here's what it says in Genesis three, eight, as soon as they sin, verse eight of Genesis three, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And it says this, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Of course, God knew where he was. He's just asking him to speak up about his situation. And verse 10, the origin of our fear. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Where does fear come from? It comes from disconnection through sin with our maker. And this is why we... Uh, need to understand where it comes from so that we can understand how we overcome it, USA Today. It comes from not coronavirus, because I gotta be honest with you, coronavirus has been around for 15 months and it's been a serious problem in our country and everybody's freaking out. I have not feared it for a moment. I don't want it, but I have not feared it. And I don't know if you have, but I, I have not upended my life at all. I've not changed a single thing. I do wear the masks because I wanna shop and go places, but I think the mask 
I'm just gonna be honest with you. It's useless. I do. I think that, and I haven't been afraid of COVID. And I'm honestly, I'm not afraid of dying. Do you know why? Because I know the antidote to fear. And some are gonna say Jesus, and it's true. Jesus is the answer to antidote to fear. But you gotta understand why. Why is Jesus the antidote to fear? Because there's only one answer to fear, and that is truth. And the truth that God loves you. Okay. The antidote to fear is truth. And that's why the miscommunication, the mistruth, the misrepresentation of science is causing constant fear, confusion, um, ignorance, uh, unnecessary worry and anxiety in people's lives because they just need to know the truth. Give us the truth. What's the science? What's the truth? And, and the, the reality is science can never provide you with uh, a solution to fear because science and listen to this very carefully, is never settled. Anybody tells you that science is settled is not a scientist because science, by definition, seeks to unsettle what we think is settled. That's what science does. It studies what we think is true or factual uh, to make sure it is, to test it, and to see is there something that we're missing here. That's what the process of science is. It's It's the process of discovery. What's true, what's not true. And so we have to get back to words and truth that matter, right? Because the truth will set you free from the spirit of fear. So science can't do it because science is always upending what is assumed to be true. Anyone ever tells you the science is settled is lying to you. The science is never settled, but there is something that is settled. It's called truth in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, John says he was full of grace and truth. And the truth in Christ is God loves you. That's the truth. 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Punishment for what? Punishment for our sins that separate us from God. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, if you have a fear issue, it might be because you have a salvation issue. If you have a fear issue, if you're overwhelmed by fear, you have a problem probably with sin. And what God came to do in Christ Jesus was to tell you historically and eternally, I love you. And if you come to me through my son, you will never fear. You will never have reason to fear. Now, doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid. Doesn't mean you're not going to have some anxiety, but you can take those fears to God. You can cast your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7. You can get the fear of God that surpasses all understanding. When you when you offer your prayers to God, uh, Philippians chapter 4, when you, when you make your petitions known to God and the peace of God guards your heart and mind, right? So there is an answer to fear, but it's not science. It's not the government. Uh, it's not education. As important as those things can be, there's only one answer to fear, and that's truth. And when you know the truth, you're set free from fear. So I have this question, and I want to continue this in the talk. Who's got the most of fear? Who's got the most of fear? There's one answer to that question, and the answer to that question is the people who think that this life is everything. That's who has the most of fear. And I mean that for you and for your loved ones. I don't want anybody to die. But if you're in Christ, you have to remember that to die is gain. If you're in Christ, this life is not everything. This cannot and will not ever be perfect, a harmonious, wonderful existence. You will always have things in this life that will bug you and rub you the wrong way and irritate you and hurt you and cause you harm. Because this life, this life is temporary and is not your home. And if you're putting all your hope in this life, you've got every reason to fear. When people hold on, and this is the problem with our country, this is the problem with our culture, that we have jettisoned Christian faith, we have jettisoned to the margins, biblical values, we have jettisoned the scriptures from our lives, and so now we are out on this rock, rotating and circling the sun on our own. And if that's your philosophy and that's your belief system, you have every right to fear because this life is everything. And if that's your philosophy, this life is as close to heaven as you will ever get. But if you are in Christ, this life is as close to hell as you will ever get. And so you don't have anything to fear because even if you lose this life, you gain true and everlasting life. In the beginning of the pandemic, I read a book and the book was by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, I'm sorry, it was about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and it was by Eric Metaxas. I encourage you to read this book. I think I've already talked about it on the deep end, but I encourage you to read this book. 
And when the lockdown began, I didn't even really mean to read this book, but I tuned into Amazon Prime and there was this documentary about Dietrich Bonhoeffer based largely on this book, or at least this book correlated well with the documentary. And it was basically about his upbringing in Germany, uh, his family, uh, his his brother who died in the First World War, and then how he kind of became a institutionalized pastor, but then moved to America and went to actually a, a largely a black congregation in Harlem and really got born again and filled with the Holy Spirit and through the work of God in his life went back to Germany in the heat of the Nazi regime and fought for the freedom of the confessing church that opposed Hitler and his ideas. And then he died for his beliefs under the Nazi regime about six weeks, I think, before the end of the Second World War. And you think about that life, you think about that story. Just to be able to say, I've got peace and safety in America, but I'm going to go back to Germany where I will probably die. I'm going to do that because God wants me to. The Holy Spirit is leading me to. And he saved countless lives. And he actually, he was part of a plan to uh, assassinate Hitler, which fell through. And that's how he got arrested. And then he was executed in uh, Flossenburg, I think, in Germany. Uh, How do you do that? How do you make those decisions, right? Like we're, we're struggling with getting outside without a mask on. <laughs> how do you go back into the, how do you go to Germany in 1939 when you know what's coming, when you know what you're headed for? And he knew that he had to go. And do you know how you, you know how you live like this? Because you know that this life is not the end. This is how you get over your fear because the truth sets you free. The truth that God loves you and has a home for you waiting for you after this life, it sets you free. And even if you lose someone who's close to you, if they are in Christ, you will see them again. Okay? So it applies to both your harm and the people who you love's harm. Yes. This is the importance of the gospel. So, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached this message in London um, years before he actually went back to Germany. And this is a quote directly from his sermon. I love this. He says, why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter. If we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace. What? Yes. This is so important. Death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentile. Gentle. It beckons us. It beckons to us with heavenly power. If only we realize that is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. Peace, end quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and spy. Uh, that's how you take off your mask. That's how you, you know, take the steps back to normalcy. That's how you should live no matter what happens. Because fear is a spirit. And our world is even asking us right now. Our world is even asking us, how do we get over this? Christians, we have the answer. But I, I, I am concerned for the church because we are just like the world in our fears. We've got to set the stage for people to see we don't have anything to fear. Death is a gift. It's a gift because it's the doorway to everlasting life with our Father. And, and I think that one second in heaven, one second in heaven, and you're going to be like, what? What was all that I was worried about? <laughs> Why would I ever want to go back? Like, seriously, can think about this because this is what we believe. Do you believe it? Do you truly believe it? Which brings me now to my hero, Arthur Pulowski. Arthur Pulowski, ladies and gentlemen, super pastor. Remember, we were talking about this guy. He's the one who ca- he who tells the uh, government to get Ouch! of the church, right? He keeps telling them, get Ouch! of my church, because he wants to lead his church in peace and in worship. Well, guess what? He is now in prison. Well, no, I'm sorry. He's went to prison. He was arrested last Saturday, uh, and he was arrested. And I want to see if I can put this up on the screen, guys. While taking his church—sorry, uh, right after Saturday night worship— at his church. Now check this video out. This is actually the video of him being arrested. They are Can you hear that? Behind. Yeah. Okay, you can hear that. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see what is about to happen. So he's Freedom about to get her. They in they Canada, democracy in Canada. By the way, they were too scared to go and arrest him in his uh in his service because the people wouldn't let them in. So they wait till he goes home alone with his brother. Force. Unbelievable. They pull him over on a busy highway, by the way. Let me just skip ahead. So, 
as per the injunction that was served on uh, Arthur here a and uh, David back here, I am to place both of them under arrest for breaching the Queen's bench order. Both of us under arrest. Yes, sir. I was just fast forward here. Sorry. And I want to show you something. This is, this is him getting arrested. There he is. Let, no, just look at that image right there. As he's, as he's on his knees on a busy highway right by an exit. This, and he's going to do what he does. <laughs> oh, this guy. Then he had... All right, so he he insists that they do it Nazi style, which means I'm not going to walk. You're going to drag me. He's a little bit of a dramatist. I get it. So he literally lets them drag him and his nice Sunday best shoes and uh, suit to the police car. And that's his brother also who gets dragged Nazi style <laughs> to the police car. Uh, this is what happens last Saturday night. Arthur and David Pulaski. And uh, it just begs the question, what's going on, Canada? What is going on, Canada? Because this this is where we're headed. This is what's happening. I mean, this is not a good look. You're arresting a Christian pastor on a busy intersection of a highway in the rain and cold. He's in Edmonton, Canada. It's cold. But he also tells me, you don't have much to fear when Christ isn't in your heart. You don't have much to fear. And I, I, I had some thoughts about this because I was wondering if this was me now. You know, I know we've kind of like looked at the videos of him kicking the, the, the uh, government officials out of his church. And we've kind of laughed and kind of said, yeah, go Arthur. But what about when they come and arrest you and you got the arrest warrant out for you? And I thought about it. Maybe, I don't know if I'd do it. I, here's, what I, here's what I would do, and that, this is what I would do, because sometimes I think we can push it too far. If I was him, I would have let the health inspectors into the church. Here's what I would have done. And I would have put my podium, my pulpit, right in front of them, six feet apart, of course, right in front of them, and I would have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as loudly and as powerfully as I got. Talk about a captive audience. They couldn't go anywhere. They're supposed to inspect the surface. So I would have, that's what I would have done. Anyway, that's not what he does. He decides, arrest me. I'm willing to take the chance. Can I ask you a question? Would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to do this? And I'm not talking about for the sake of social distancing. What happens when it turns from arrested for social distancing to arrested for just being a Christian? Because it's coming that way. It's coming in that direction. It's headed that way. Anyway, he was in prison for about uh, 48 hours, and now he's actually been released from prison. Uh, he has a long legal process ahead. And I have a question for Canada. What happened? Oh, Canada. Right? Oh, Canada, your anthem says, God keep our land glorious and free. What happened? <laughs> and I, I wouldn't have a problem with this if they, if they treated the mosques equally, because as we talked about several weeks ago, the mosques are packed and no one is making a stink about them. But they're coming after Christian pastors. By the way, you can head over to SaveArthur.com. It's Arthur, not Arthur. SaveArthur.com and, and support his legal fight, his legal battle. That's him getting out of jail yesterday or this morning, actually. Um, but he's not the only one. Now, we've talked about James Coates, whose uh, church is closed down and they're meeting in private. They're meeting in uh, undisclosed locations. Uh, this is uh, another pastor named Jacob Rahm, whose building was also seized. He's in Toronto, Trinity Bible Fellowship in Toronto. And this is not the first time that Canada has upped the pressure on Christian pastors. In 2019, June 2019, Pastor David Lynn was arrested for preaching outside of a homosexual or pride event, and they arrested him. He was not preaching hate. He was just preaching God loves you, and God wants you to repent and turn from your sin, and, and they, they arrested him. He was on the street preaching. They arrested him. This is June of 2019. Um, by the way, is this not hate? <laughs> is this not hate when we arrest pastors for just doing what they do, even if it's in a free, quote-unquote, society? Why, why is the government suddenly worried about these preachers? this is where we've come to. And so it begs the question that I ask 
uh, all of you, one more time, who's got the most to fear? Who's got the most to fear? Dietrich Bonhoeffer did not have anything to fear. Why? His He knew the truth that God loved him, that God had a home for him. For him. He knew where he was going. Arthur Pulowski, he knows where he is going. And I know where I am going. And I ask you, do you know where you are going? Because if you know where you're going, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. That's the news. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe. Make sure you do all that. And also, if you would, support The Deep End at thedeepend.tv. That's the news. I hope you enjoy the news. We got to get to the talk on David or we'll never finish this episode. So that leads me to the life of David. Are you enjoying the talk on David? I am. I'm really loving it. And we're going to get to a talk today on the art of repentance, the art of repentance. David has been called out for his sin with Bathsheba. Um, God sends Nathan to David to uh, rebuke the king. And we talked about last week that this is an important moment in, in Israel's history because it actually has something to say about our history as Americans or people of the West. Nathan, the, the prophet, confronts King David, who is the sovereign over the land of Israel. But the sovereign king is accountable to what? To the word of God. And when Nathan speaks to David and confronts him with his own sin, David is now on the hot seat. He has to repent. In ancient cultures, this was an abnormality because ancient kings were considered divine and they were the rulers of every part of the society. And so what you have here is a precedent for the checks and balances that are in our government you know, our government is three branches, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, and they're supposed to hold each other in check. That's why the laws can be made by the legislative branch and the executor cannot ex execute because he feels convicted that he shouldn't, but then the judicial branch can overrule him or overrule the law. And this is, the, is what we call separation of powers or checks and balances. Where does it come from? It comes from this moment here in David's life. It really does because David is checked. He is balanced by the word of God. And so the wonderful thing that Israel con contributes to the cultural West is that there is something that every one of us is accountable to. There is something, there is someone that every one of us is accountable to, and that is God's word, God's truth. And when, again, we remove truth, we are left with fear, and the government likes to slide in and say, we're going to help you with that fear. But Christians, it's time to stand up and say, no, we don't need to trust the government. We trust our God. We pray for our government, but we trust our God. We pray for our government, but we love our God because our God is our father. Anyway, to that point, we go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we look and pick up the story after Nathan confronts David with the story of the man, you know, he gives him a little parable, the man of the guy who, the king, I'm sorry, who takes the lamb from the guy with one lamb and then kills the lamb for his guest. And uh, this is how David responds, 2 Samuel 12, 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Uh, as the Lord lives, by the way, now David's words are going to come back to bite him. The man who has done this, what? Deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Okay. A couple of interesting points about this text. Number one, David sees sin in somebody else and he says it's worthy of death. He doesn't see the sin in himself until Nathan confronts him, but he sees it in others. And that is the human condition. That is all of our condition. We all see other people's sins a heck of a lot clearer than we see our sins, especially before Christ comes in and starts to convict us. Um, we see other people's sins. This is why Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in somebody else's eye. But anyway, David says that guy deserves to die and then he shall repay fourfold. By the way, uh, David will lose as a result of this sin four sons. Just a little tidbit there. He will lose the child that is conceived through his adultery with Bathsheba. He will lose Amnon, Absalom, and uh, another one, which I can't remember <laughs> the name. But anyway, he will lose four sons himself because he took a son of God's life, Uriah. Okay? And so his anger flares up. He's mad. And then Nathan, with the line of the story, says in verse 7, you are the man. It's you, David. Thus says the Lord God 
of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much, much more. In other words, David, remember everything comes from God. And he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You used a foreign government to kill my son and you were supposed to protect my sons from foreign governments. And God is angered with David. And now there's going to be judgment pronounced. There's going to be, and listen, wrath of God upon David's life and in David's house. And, and so here's what, here's what uh, uh, Nathan says in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. This is judgment for sin. This is wrath. This is wrath. And we have a problem in church talking about wrath for sin, God's wrath against sin. But I, I'm going to talk about this in a moment. Why wrath God's wrath against sin is good for us. It's good for us. Just hang on because I'm going to just summarize it in just a moment. Uh, verse 13, it says, David, sorry, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have uttered, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Uh, by this deed, sorry, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Okay. L let's leave this, this part right here that the child will die. Um, for next time we're together. Because I want to get into why the child and why other people have to die for David's sin next week. What I want to, what I want to po uh, focus on this week is the response that David has toward this confrontation. And the response is beautiful. It really is. As bad as David's sin was, uh, David provides for us a beautiful picture of repentance. His response to Nathan is, I've sinned. And this should be our response when we are confronted with our sins. Let me speak about repentance because repentance is a lost art in the church that is America, in the American church. We don't talk about repentance anymore. We talk about blessings. We talk about prosperity. We talk about being awesome and dreams and my purpose and my calling, but we don't talk about repentance. And I want to tell you, it's great to have dreams. It's great to have a calling. It's great to feel your and know your purpose. And it's great to be, you know, blessed. But without repentance, you got nothing. There's nothing happening. You're just rearranging furniture on the deck of the Titanic without repentance. Got it? Let me talk about repentance because it is clear from Scripture that repentance is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. I want to show you a verse. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging around a tree. God exalted him at the right hand, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance. Look at this. Repentance comes from God to Israel and the forgiveness of sin. That God gives us the ability to repent. Okay, theologians call this regeneration. Don't confuse regeneration with sanctification. A lot of people do. Oh, regeneration is God making me new after I come to Christ. No, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit upon your heart to hear the word, receive the word, believe the word, and then upon belief, God goes to work in justifying your sin, justifying you uh, before God and cleansing you of all your sins. And then the work of sanctification follows justification. Okay, so regeneration, the heart is warmed. Uh, Jonathan Wesley talked about that, that on that ship with the Moravian missionaries uh, in the middle of the storm. He's on the way to uh, America as a missionary for the Church of England. He doesn't even have a relationship with God. And his heart is strangely warmed as he hears the worship in the middle of the storm by the Moravian uh, missionaries. That's the work of regeneration. Um, Blaise Pascal talked about the, the, the fire of God upon his heart uh, in, in the night. Um, the Bible talks in Acts chapter 16 of Lydia's heart was open that she might receive the word that was spoken by Paul. You, you have to understand, oh, Acts chapter 2, when Peter speaks the, the, the repentance message on the day of Pentecost, it says they were cut to the heart. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit, changing our hearts to receive the truth that we don't sometimes want to hear, that we are sinners and we need to repent of our sin, not point, uh, not point out the sins of others, but ask God to forgive us of our sins. And, and this is important because let's be honest, 
it's hard to admit. <laughs> it's hard to admit that you're a sinner, isn't it? It's just so hard. In fact, I have a quote. Uh, the great pastor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is there anything more difficult than to admit we are wrong? Is there anything more difficult than to admit we are wrong? So God will send messengers to us to wake us from our slumber. He will. He will do this because he loves us. And then he will tell us about the consequences of sin. And he will let us experience the consequences of sin. And he will raise up some, some, certain, some situations that we don't want in our lives to purge us from our sinful nature, as will happen with David and his sons, including the one that was conceived in his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And the reason why is because God is doing a work in you. If you are a Christian, please understand that you will not be punished in eternity for your sins, but you will be punished by God because he loves you in this life to remove from you that tendency to sin. You will be disciplined. You will be, you will be, um, uh, uh, punished and uh, chastised. That's what I'm starting to think of. Chastised for your sins. Now, I want to read another quote from John Calvin. This is a great quote. There is nothing better than when God sends us messengers of his wrath, for then he can make us feel his mercy and cease to enjoy our sins. See, the wrath that God pours out, and I say is passive wrath in the life of Christians, is to get us to stop enjoying our sins. That's what the wrath of God is for in the life of Christians. So that we may apprehend his vengeance and our conscience may torment us to the extent of humbling us to seek pardon and remission in him until he has accepted us. God will let us feel and see the wrath that he has against sin so that we stop enjoying it. What are you enjoying that you know God is not enjoying it? It is very possible that God will let you feel the wrath of God in that sin so that you will stop enjoying it. That's how he purges you. That's how he cleanses you. That's how he sanctifies you. And David is going to experience this in the subsequent chapters. But before we get there, we got to go to the two Psalms that he writes in, re in repentance to God. The two Psalms that he writes in response to this moment, in, this, in response to this confrontation with the prophet Nathan. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And I want to go there because these are beautiful Psalms given to us in the aftermath of David's worst moment. And it's kind of, it's kind of a good thing that he wrote this down because out of that hideous moment, we get two beautiful Psalms that help us repent, turn to God, pray to him, in our worst moments, and then receive the blessing that is ours, that is available to us through repentance. And I want to take us on a journey through these two Psalms. I'm going to go quickly, but I want to show you how beautiful it is. And then we're going to talk about the art of repentance. Okay, so let's get there. Uh, Psalm 51, uh, verse, well, title to verse two, it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him. So we know when this Psalm was written after he had gone into Bathsheba. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Okay, three words that Paul, that, oh, Paul, that David uses, transgressions, iniquity, sin. They are three phrases that we have to understand if we're under, going to understand what it means to live as sinners in this world. Transgression means that you go beyond the law. Iniquity means that there's something inside of you. Think about this word in, just take this word uh, iniquity and slice it in half. In equity, in equity. Something's not equal. Something's not kosher. Something's not equivalent in our lives. There's a disconnect. And then sin here refers to, the word sin refers to missing the mark. So the art of repentance is about understanding that God's law is to keep us within certain boundaries to help us make the mark or hit the mark of life that he wants for us and to remove that inner disconnection within us, iniquity. And I'm going to talk to you today about the art of repentance, the art of repentance, because it is an art form. It is an art form. We have to learn how to repent. What's the proper ways God's people repent? And I say art intentionally because we are his workmanship. Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship. The word workmanship could be translated masterpiece. We are his art. Okay. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he had prepared for us in advance to do. And we can't get to the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do if we do not wrestle with and seek freedom from 
the sin that stains our souls. See, God wants to work in us. He wants to purge us. He wants to cleanse us. Actually, Paul the Apostle calls us to participate in this process. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since then we have prom- these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. So that eliminates the idea that God's just going to do it all. No, oh, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. In other words, something's got to go. Something's got to get out of our lives. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is our job. We are working our salvation out in in cooperation with God the Father so that we might become perfected. We might become more like Jesus, the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. I want to show you another verse because it pertains to what is talking about in our lives. First Kings 15, 5 says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And uh, the reason why I bring that passage up is very simple, because what repentance is doing for us is what it is doing here in David's life. David is a Christ-like figure. He's pointing to Christ. He is not Christ, but he's pointing to Christ and those who are in Christ. And like David, we are not Christ, but we are in Christ. And as being in Christ, here's the reality. Here's the fact. You will never be comfortable with sin. You'll never be comfortable with it. So you've got to work it out. You've got to get it out. You've got to purge your life from these things that destroy you. So here's what repentance is. Summing it up to get to the point, and then we'll get to the points. Repentance is making us more like God by helping us purge the sinful habits that corrupt and corrode our lives and reputation. See, David's one reputational sin was that matter with Uriah the Hittite. Well, God leads him through repentance to cleanse him, to, 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 to use that for our good, to point us to Jesus and to lead us toward Jesus in repentance. So let's talk about the art of, art of repentance. Number one, first, to get to the art of repentance, we have to understand what sin does. Number one, sin sticks to the soul. Sin sticks to the soul. Here's what, here's what David says in Psalm 51.3. I know my transgressions. Here's the words again. My, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you only, you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Notice David is completely surrendered to God's word. You are right, I am wrong. And also notice that in his iniquity, in that sense of sinfulness, in his transgression, in his confrontation, when he is when he is kind of hit right between the eyes, he doesn't run from God, he runs to God. This is a common practice for so many Christians. When they feel sinful, they run from God. This is a common excuse that Christians use. They say, I can't go to church today. I'm too sinful. No, you got to go to church because you are sinful. A church is not a museum of finished products, a museum of perfected saints. A church is a hospital of horrible sinners. We are healing. We are in the process of getting better. We are in the process of recovery. All of us are. You know, AA likes to talk about being in recovery. I got news for you, AA. We're all in the process of recovery. We all need a savior. We all need that higher power. But the higher power is not a power. It's a person. And the person is Jesus. And so when you sin, you have to do what David does here. You have to go right to God and tell him, I blew it. You're right. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. Because why? Because sin sticks to the soul. Okay. Sin sticks to the soul. Okay. Moving on uh, to verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Now, there is a common misconception about this text. When he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. A lot of people say, oh, that's because he was the product of a, an adulterous affair with his, uh, uh, between Jesse and some woman. And that's why Jesse didn't bring him out to Samuel to give him the opportunity to become uh, king because he was the son of an adulterous affair. Well, that's not really in the text. Uh, this is a theological proposition and it's an important one. This is a theological, there's a doctrine that David is stating here. He says, I was conceived or I was brought forth in equity. In other words, sin is a condition that we are born with. And we can't avoid this doctrine or we will, we will turn into moralists who try to improve ourselves instead of repenting and turning to the God who heals us and delivers us from sin. Job 15, 14. I'll give you another passage. Job 15, 14 says, what is man that he can be pure or who, or or he who is born of woman, that he can be righteous. In other words, there's no man that is pure or righteous. And so when David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, he's not talking necessarily about an adulterous affair between Jesse and some other woman. He's talking about the fact that I was born sinful. Sin sticks to my soul. 
The next thing he's going to tell us, number two, is that sin soils your mind. Sin soils your mind. It, it's, it, it gets you dirty. Okay, I want to show you this in the next verse. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Look at all the texts that have to do with washing. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Uh, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you were broken rejoice. Uh, hyssop was an instrument used by the priests in the Old Testament, the Levitical system, where they would sprinkle the blood on the branch of the hyssop tree, like a brush on the sacrifices on the altars and there's also this one moment in Leviticus 14 where a picture of our salvation, there's, a, there's two live birds, they break the neck of one, they take the blood, they sprinkle it through the hyssop branch on the other live bird, and then they set that live bird free. This is a picture of us. We are the live bird. Jesus is the dead bird. He was, he was broken for us, and his blood cleanses us, and we're sprinkled with his blood, and we go free. Well, the reason why those pictures are in Scripture is because it's teaching us to understand sin. What sin does is it contaminates our minds. The more you sin, the more your mind gets contaminated. It stains the mind. And you got to understand this. This is why Scripture talks about being calloused in our heart, in our mind. We get so blinded by sin, we don't even see how dangerous it is. This is why one sin will lead to another in our lives because it starts to slowly blind us and stain our mind, and then we're polluted. This is, this is why Paul will tell Timothy, this is a great line from Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.25. He says to Paul, Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, he says, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts. By the way, there it is again. Repentance is a work of God, regeneration. Okay, God, subject, will change, verb, people's hearts, direct object, right? God is the one who does it, regenerates our hearts so that we can learn the truth and then they will come to their senses, Um indicating what? They are not presently in their senses. <laughs> That's what unbelievers are. They don't have sense. They don't have a sense of sin. So when they are changing their heart by God, then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap for they have been held captive to do whatever he wants. Sin is a condition. Sin is something that is staining our mind. And if we are apart from Christ, it actually blinds our minds. It is very important that we get this right because so many Christians try to moralize salvation and, 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 and try to say, no, you just got to think better thoughts. No, you, you can't think better thoughts. You need to be delivered. You need to be delivered from the thoughts of your mind. Okay. Psalm 51 verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. He's looking for cleansing. He's looking for cleansing. Why is David looking for cleansing? Very simple. Very simple, because sin soils your mind. You don't think right when you're, when you're in sin. You don't think right, you don't act right, you don't look right. The scripture refers to us as sheep. It does not call us pigs. Let me tell you why. Because a pig is very comfortable in mud. A pig will wallow in the mud, sleep in the mud, lay in the mud, love the mud, and he will get up and walk out of the mud and no big deal. That is what, sh that is what pigs do. But sheep do not do well in mud. I have a picture here up on the screen of a shepherd or boy here is rescuing a sheep from the mud. Why? Because the wool does not mix with the mud. Hmm? Are you getting the picture here? <laughs> you are a sheep. You are the sheep of his pasture. And sin is staining. It stains you. It gets in your wool. It holds you back. It traps you. Think about a sheep going into a mud pit. You can't treat sheep and pigs the same way. By the way, your God, your father does not treat you the same way he treats the pigs, the pagans. Pagans can wallow in the mud. They have no problem with the mud. They love the mud. They live in the mud. They sleep in the mud. They drink the mud. Who cares? Christians can't do that. Sheep get stuck in the mud. It weighs them down. It threatens their life. It will destroy them. So God, the good shepherd, Jesus, rescues us from the mud of our sin. I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon said. This is a fantastic phrase. He said, God does not permit, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. Ooh, I love that verse. He just doesn't. Okay, so number three point on the art of repentance, sin separates us from God. Now we have to continue to get this point. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 11 says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, don't let me be segregated from you, God. Don't let me get segregated from you. Isaiah 59, 2, your sins have separated you, has made, have made a sin a separation between you and your God. Sin separates us from God. When we sin, we feel disconnected. 
And then we fear <laughs> because fear is rooted in our disconnect from, disconnection from God. And I, whatever area it is that you're feeling anxious about, whatever area it is, I guarantee you that there's something that you can look at and say, wait, I'm not trusting God in this area. I'm sinning in this area. I'm looking to my own strength, my own power, my own life in this area. It's going to separate. That's what sin does. It causes separation between you and God. And number four, sin saddens the heart. Sin removes the joy of the Lord from you, Christian. This is why important. This is why we're going to get to how we deal with this. But this is why repentance is so important because we're trying to deal with all these problems, these emotional problems, these mental problems, these societal problems, these relational problems that sin causes. One of them is the emotional problem of sadness. Look what David says in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In other words, I have no joy if I'm living in sin. God will not allow you to enjoy sin, Christian. Maybe for a little bit, but it will not last. And he says, uphold me with a willing spirit. Sin brings sorrow. By the way, it also brings sickness into the life of the Christian. It does. Sin brings sickness. 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul talks about, this is why many of you are sick and weak and ill, because you do not discern the Lord's body. He's saying, look, there's sin, there's sin in you, and because you're a sinner and you're a Christian, God's not going to let you sin successfully, and you're going to get sickness. Not all sickness is the result of sin, but a lot of it is in the Christian's lives because you're not living righteously. You're not, how many people are, are stressed out in, in mental hospitals because they're, they're emotionally tied up in unforgiveness. They're emotionally tied up in regret. They're emotionally tied up in, in remorse and, or, or habitual habits that destroy you, uh, spending habits that rob you, uh, looking habits that poison you, uh, you know, um, verbal habits that, that torture your relationships. Sin saddens the heart. Number five, sin stifles your testimony. Sin stifles your testimony, Christian. Okay, look at look at what Paul's, uh, again, Paul, David, look at what David says in Psalm 51, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In other words, I will speak well of you when I get this sin out of me. Because that's what sin does. Sin spoils your testimony. Sin, I'm sorry, sin, what? What was the last one? Sin stifles your testimony. Sorry, it's my points and I can't even remember. I'm sorry. I will speak better about you, God, when this is taken care of. I think about Peter. Peter who denied Christ. Remember what Jesus says to Peter when he warns him about denying him? He says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, 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 I'll never do that. Peter, Jesus says, I'm God. I know the end from the beginning. You're going to deny me. And then he says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, in other words, when you are brought back to repentance, strengthen your brothers. In other words, there's a repentance. The, the, the gift that repentance provides for the Christian is a testimony to other sinners that there's hope. There's hope beyond that sin. You know, one of the things that we do as a Christian church, and it really drives me nuts. So what we do constantly is we, we just uh, forever banish pastors who are caught up in some adulterous affair, financial disaster or whatever. And I get it. Some people are beyond the pale. Some situations are so horrible. We've got to, we've got to restore very carefully and maybe not ever at all to that position because it was such an abuse of power. But when it is simply a one-time thing or maybe a two-time thing or whatever, and it's just, look, let's see if we can bring this guy back because God's going to give him a testimony. Don't do it. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the alimony payments to tell you, you don't want to be involved in this. We, we got to learn to restore people because I think that the art of repentance leads us back to a better testimony. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment, but, but back to the Psalm, verse 15, it says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 15, verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would, give it, I would have given it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These you will not despise. In other words, sin stifles your testimony. Sin and repentance actually opens your mouth to praise and, and, and give glory to God. Lastly, number six, sin saps a nation and a community. Sin will rob a nation and a community. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the West, the cultural West. I always talk about it here on the deep end. You understand what I'm talking about. All these westernized countries that were blessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the freedom of religion, the freedom, the separation of powers, the, the freedom to own property, all these things that are rooted in the scriptures. 
And now we are seeing our countries and our nations fall apart. We're seeing people filled with fear and not being able to go outside even after being vaccinated and masked up. Sin saps a nation and a community. I'll show you from the scripture here. In Psalm 51, verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, sin is destroying the city. So my repentance, through my repentance, Father, Father, he's saying, please do good to the city. Do good to Zion. Here's the point. Sin hurts us emotionally, physically, socially, and relationally, but God immediately responds to our repentance. And this is the beautiful point that I want us to get to. Yes, sin will cost us. Yes, sin will hurt us. But God responds immediately to our repentance, just as he does here to David. Let's go to the book of Acts to get a good verse about this, to get a good truth injection about this. Uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, the 19 says this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, mm, 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 that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, we're brought back to God. We're refreshed in our spirits. The Lord is with us. Our sins are blotted out. How? Repentance. If we repent, there's refreshing coming. Whatever your sin is, whatever is going on, whatever you're not giving up to God, whatever you are committed last night, Turn to God. He will give you refreshment in his spirit. That leads me to uh, David's second psalm in repentance. And I know this is going long, but let's just continue. Psalm 32. I'm going to go through this quickly. After Psalm 51, he writes Psalm 32 because he's forgiven. He's He's brought back. And here's how he writes about his experience of going through it. Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom, whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, listen to this. Uh, by the way, blessed means happy. For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It never, it stains our minds, soils our minds, right? Then verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God does not let you sin successfully, Christian. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. He's saying, listen, I've been there, I've done that. Don't live in your sin. Don't let the devil trick you to think that God can't forgive you, God won't forgive you, and God doesn't love you anymore. Just don't let that happen. It's a trap. It's going to destroy your spirit. You can't live there. You can't live there successfully as a Christian. Then he goes on in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I'm going to stop there from Psalm 32. You can go and read it yourself. It was a beautiful psalm of repentance and restoration and the blessing of just letting God hear your confession. He wants to hear you confess sin because he wants to forgive. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8, if we, can, if we uh, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and then to cleanse us, wash us of all of our unrighteousness. So let's sum this up, huh? Let's sum this episode up. Here's the art of repentance. Here's the art. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a better point than just what sin does. So s stick with me. Sin sticks to your soul, soils your mind, separates you from God, saddens the heart, stifles your testimony, and saps a nation and community. But upon the moment of confession, God takes it away. God purifies. God brings us back. God restores our joy. God gives us a new testimony. And God rescues a people. God takes away our sins. That's John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes your sins away, friend. He doesn't cover them. He takes them away. God purifies. That's 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God brings us back. Mark 10, 45. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That is a payment term to bring someone back to its original owner. He gave his life as a ransom to bring you back to God. God restores our joy. He will give us beauty for ashes, a joyous, joyful blessing instead of mourning. Isaiah 61, verse 3. God gives us a new testimony. I think of Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. God rescues a people. Zephaniah 3.20. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. By the way, repentance in the Bible is often a communal event. 
It is not always just an individual event. It is a communal event. We as a nation, we as a Christian church in this country need to repent of trying to follow the ways of this world, trying to jump onto the political bandwagons of this world, trying to be like the world, act like the world, even fear the things the world, world fears. It's time for the whole church to repent so that the world can see that there's truth, that God loves us, and that truth will set us free because this world is not our home. God will one day bring us out and home <laughs> and home to heaven. Amen. Oh, this was a good episode. I hope it has helped you. And I hope that you will do me the favor of checking us out on all of our social media pages, especially at the deep end TV on Instagram and on youtube.com slash the deep end TV. And again, youtube.com slash TV is fulfilled with all brand new content. You want to see these new shorter versions of, uh, you know, episodes uh, on location videos that I'm having a ball editing and making. Make sure you like, th- make sure you like those videos too. Make sure you watch those videos and uh, also check out Deep End Swag on Deep End, the Deep End TV. This is the end of the episode, episode 23 of season four. I'm so glad that you were here. I hope I will see you next week. Where? On the Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.